gracious introduction. I have to thank John for that. I am really pumped to be here. I haven't visited here in a couple of years. In fact, actually, the last time I was here, I was visiting churches as I, as I do, and I just happened to stop in. I had been at a couple other churches uh, that morning, and I, can't, I was in a full suit, and I happened to be here uh, the Sunday after the previous pastor had resigned, and I, I have to tell you, I was greeted very warmly. Uh, to the point that it was a tad obnoxious. Like, people were greeting me as songs were being played, and I don't know if it was just a guy my age walking in in a suit. I don't know what it was, but just like... And then uh, some of you even knew Union Baptist Association because I, I mentioned to somebody, I was like, well, I work with the association, and somebody actually grabbed my arm, and they said, oh, you're from the association, which I got to tell you, I don't get a lot. Uh, because most people, we are a very cleverly kept secret, uh, even though we work with 425-ish churches around the Houston area, most people don't know what UBA is, and so if you're in that group and you have, I have no idea what UBA is, that's okay, you're in the majority of people. And so uh, the last time I was here, the renovation had not happened yet, you were about to move over to the Fellowship Hall, and I got to tell you, this place is gorgeous. And so, yeah, I mean, it's... Y'all have done a fantastic job, and, and I, I got to tell you, I count John as a friend, and uh, I'm just so excited. I'm excited that he's on vacation. Uh, I, get to, I get to do this a lot when pastors are on vacation. It's a good thing that your pastors go on vacation, okay? All, all of your staff need vacation, should take vacation. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing that they do, so good for you for blessing your pastors and encouraging them and, and all of your staff members to go on vacation. He's actually on a retreat uh, with other pastors that UBA is putting on. And right about now, actually, they left, I think, about 15 minutes ago. Uh, several of them got on the same flight to go to Colorado uh, to go to, on a retreat in Estes Park, Colorado. So I'm from Colorado. I'm not from Texas. Uh, so some of you can hiss at that moment. That's fine. Uh, but we have mountains and four seasons in Colorado. And I got to tell you, it's been over 100 degrees for like, I don't know, a year and a half now. And so I think Colorado wins at this particular moment in time. But I have to tell you, as part of it, some of you are like, he's never going to preach. He's just going to talk. I, I am going to get to the sermon. But as a way of leading into that, it was never my intention to be in the ministry, ever. Like from the time that I was 12 years old, I wanted to be in the military, and I executed that plan pretty well. I mean, from the time that I was 12 and all the control that I had, I went to college on an ROTC scholarship. Um, I got into West Point. There's a strange turn of events there, and I won't bore you with that part of the story, but I was at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, which is hotter but a little bit drier than here, and wondering you know, okay, this is, I guess, part of the plan. And somewhere in the middle of my sophomore year, God really got a hold of me in a fresh new way. I, I had become a Christian by, when I was six years old, but God got a hold of me as an 18-year-old, almost 19-year-old, and said, look, you have been following your plan since you were 12, and if I'm the Lord of your life, it's time for you to really consider, are you ever going to follow my plan for your life? And so God and I argued about that for about a year, and then eventually I said, okay, Lord, you are my Lord. I will follow your plan for my life. Um, I just don't know what it means to be in ministry. And I'm sure, I can't prove this, 
but I'm sure that I heard an audible chuckle from heaven because my first ministry assignment was junior high ministry. Now, I didn't like junior high when I was in junior high. And so I was sure that I was being tested or maybe punished by being sent back to junior high ministry at that point. So now that you know a little bit about me, my question for you is, have you ever been asked to do something that you didn't want to do? Have you ever been sent somewhere that you didn't really want to go? Now, as you're thinking about that for your own life, it may surprise you to find out that there were plenty of people in Scripture who were asked to do something or go a certain place by God Himself, and their answer was not the Sunday school answer. Their answer was not, yes, Lord, send me, I'll go. Their answer was, no, I don't want to do that. Or their answer was even, I don't want to do that to such an extreme that I will run from the God of the universe. Now, if you have a church background, you might be wondering if I'm going to tell the story of Jonah. I am going to tell the story of Jonah, and I'm going to tell it in a way that maybe you've not ever heard it before. Okay, but before we do that, we have to learn a Sunday school word. We have to really focus on a Sunday school word, and it's this word up here on the screen, missionary. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I've, I've been in Sunday school before. I have a church background. I know what the word missionary means. But here's the actual definition. I had to, I had to look it up. And I, I really don't like when speakers go to the, the dictionary definition. It's kind of a cheap, low-bar move. But, but here's what the definition is. It's a person sent on mission, which you're like, well, that's the dumbest definition I've ever heard. That's kind of what I would have intuited. I, me too. But that's what it is. A missionary is a person on mission. And it really actually has a, a religious connotation. We get the word missionary from this idea that it is someone involved on a holy mission. And we actually get it from the Great Commission. This is when Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. This is his last words to his disciples on earth. You'll find them at the end of the book of Matthew. And so when he says to his disciples, I want you to go, baptize, make disciples, he's saying, I want you to be on mission. I want you to collaborate that co on mission with me. And that's where we get the word missionary from. Now, this is a very different word than messenger, okay? So when we talk about being missionaries, we're not talking about being a messenger. Now, it's important that you understand that because God doesn't need a bunch of postal workers, okay? God doesn't say, I'm going to write this down, I'm going to give it to you, and then I want you to dispassionately, with no investment on your part, go and put it in somebody else's hand. So for the rest of the sermon today, I want you to forget about being a messenger. I want you to focus on being a missionary. So back to the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah is a very small book, and we're going to go through the entire book today, all four chapters. Now, some of you might have just gotten scared. You're thinking you're never going to get to lunch, okay? But you will, I promise. In fact, Jonah is only the first half of my sermon. Now you really got scared. This is all of Jonah right here. Okay? It's a two-page spread in my Bible. Now, and if you really want a, a fun little biblical exercise, now you can tell I'm a Bible nerd. 
Verse 10 in each of the chapters is a really critical verse, okay? So I'm going to hit verse 10 in each of these chapters. It's not even going to be up here on the screen because this is how fast we're going to go through Jonah, okay? This is what we know about Jonah, and it starts in verse 1. In the first three verses, that will be up here on the screen. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, all you need to know is that Nineveh was a capital city. There were five capital cities. It was a capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the bad guy. Okay? Assyria was going to wipe out uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, later on, and Jonah knew that they were the bad guys. Jonah knew that these guys lived in sin, they lived far from the Lord, and what the Lord was asking him to do was go to the capital city of the bad guys and preach against them and basically try and convert them to believers. And Jonah was like, no, I don't think so. And so he goes down to the port and he says, I need to find a ship sailing as far in the opposite direction as possible. And he even tells the ship captain, we know because it tells us in verse 10, I'm fleeing from the Lord because I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Now, here's a little travel tip for you. If you were to go to the airport today and you were to stand in line as you're buying tickets and you hear the person in front of you tell the Southwest agent, listen, I will take a Southwest flight to wherever you want to go, but I am fleeing from God. Get out of line, okay? Do not go wherever that person's going because the rest of that flight, to say it's going to be bumpy and you're going to experience turbulence is putting it mildly, okay? But the polytheists who are piloting this boat, they say, hey, aren't we all fleeing from God? I mean, really, who isn't? So they take his money and they say, we're going to Tarshish. And then Jonah essentially puts in his ear pods and he goes down to take a nap. So he goes down into the hull of the ship. The rest of chapter one is they start sailing for Tarshish. A storm comes up as you would expect and God tries to get their attention. The ship captains start throwing stuff overboard it doesn't go well. The storm is continuing to threaten the very survival of this ship. They wake up Jonah and they say, look, we're all praying to whatever God that we pray to. It's time that you pray to whatever God that you pray to. And Jonah says, remember, I'm fleeing from the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the oceans, like the one that we're sailing around right now. The solution to our problem is that you throw me overboard. And they say, yeah. Yeah, we're not big on murder. See, the gods that we pray for, they punish that kind of thing. So we're not going to do that. They continue to throw stuff overboard. He says, really, guys, I'm telling you, the solution is throw me overboard. And they say, okay, uh, whatever we're praying to, forgive us for this. They chuck him overboard. And as soon as they chuck him overboard, calm seas for them. He gets swallowed into the belly of a big fish. Now, let's be honest. I don't know if it was a whale or a fish. I doubt the writers of the Old Testament knew the difference, but it says belly of a big fish, and here we are. We find us in chapter two. See, that was all chapter one. We're on our way to lunch, I promise. Now, chapter two is one of the best prayers that you will ever find in the Bible. I'm telling you right now, that is not the first draft of that prayer, okay? Because if you were swallowed by a big fish, you are not praying the kind of very eloquent King James prayer that you are finding in Jonah chapter 2, okay? 
you are not lighting a candle and having a calm conversation like you saw in Pinocchio or the Mario movie, okay? I guarantee you the first draft of this prayer in Jonah chapter 2 sounds a lot like screaming, okay? You're swimming around in the belly of a fish. You're covered in fish guts. Now you, you've had a fish dinner before. Now you smell like a fish dinner because you are a fish dinner. But eventually, over the course of three days and three nights, Jonah has his attention gotten. He comes to his senses and he says, Lord, I've had some time to consider this. And I think Nineveh doesn't sound like such a bad place after all. I will go. And after three days and three nights, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Jonah chapter 2, what verse? Verse 10. That's right. You remember it. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto land. I said I worked in student ministry, okay? It vomited, it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So basically, he took a submarine to Nineveh, and he shows up smelling like a fish dinner, ready to do the missionary work that he was asked to do in the first place. So he shows up in Nineveh. Now we're in chapter 3. See, chapter 2 is easy. Now he shows up in Nineveh. And instead of freshly pressed robes, he shows up looking like a sushi plate. And he wanders into Nineveh. And you would expect, after three days and three nights, in the belly of a fish, this guy who is now fully focused on being a missionary, right? Not a messenger. He pours his heart and his soul into this message because now he's, he's in a city of 120,000 people and he's got the message of the Lord God Almighty to deliver with the heart of a missionary, right? That's what you would expect. Except if you've ever witnessed this story before or heard this story before, you know that that's not what Jonah does. What Jonah does is he spends three days in the city saying 40 days and 40 nights before you get nuked. Okay, that's not exactly what he says, but that's pretty close to what he says. He says, on the first day Jonah started into, and this is Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, on the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. If you're waiting for the rest of the message, you won't find it. That was the opening and close quote. Forty more days, and the city of Nineveh will be overturned. That's his entire sermon. That's the entire Billy Graham crusade right there. And the city of Nineveh is so concerned and so believed this guy who is wandering through their city smelling like fish guts that this is their reaction. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which means they are ready to completely overturn their way of life. Putting on sackcloth and ashes is their way of repenting and mourning and saying, we have really wronged God, the creator of the universe, and we are ready to completely reverse course. And when I say completely, I mean completely. The message and, and what's going on reaches the king of Nineveh, and he declares from the king and the nobles all the way down, this is what he says, do not let man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And I love that. The king of Nineveh says, you know what? 
We're going to be so dedicated to this fast and so dedicated to this repentance that we're not just putting on sackcloth and ashes. We're putting sackcloth and ashes on the cows, the sheep, the cats, the dogs, the gerbils, everybody. Everybody's going to repent. And who knows, God may yet relent because he sent this prophet, however he sent him, to give us this message. And then, verse 10 when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Here's the God of the universe showing mercy and relenting and showing compassion and proving the kind of God that he is. And now we get our attention back to Jonah. Now we see the most successful revival crusade in history Jonah, this guy, after a three-day revival and a one-sentence sermon, no three points in a prayer, no poems, no any of that, one-sentence revival crusade, now this guy who's going straight to the Prophet Hall of Fame, what do we find him doing? We find him in chapter 4, verse 1, climbing to the top of a bluff that overlooks the city of Nineveh, hoping that God will nuke the city anyway. And when he doesn't, he starts pouting like a three-year-old who just had his toy taken away. Listen to this. Verse 4, chapter 1, or uh, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. And you have to read that. You can't read this like you're sitting in church. You have to read this like the petulant little Jonah that he is. I'm sorry for any of you who named your child Jonah. I'm really sorry for that, or any of you who are considering this, because this is the actual Jonah. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You know that he was just kind of gritting his teeth as he was saying, slow to anger and abounding in love. You know, you've got to have an Old Testament prophet who can say that while pounding his fist in the air. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. It would be the first time of three more, of two more times, that Jonah would ask the Lord to kill him because God didn't nuke this city of 120 thousand people and at the end of Jonah chapter 4 he's still in that state that's where we leave it God doesn't nuke the city of Nineveh and Jonah is still pouting that God was a compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love that is the entire story of Jonah all four chapters now why should Jonah have felt differently? Why are we left with such a weird taste in our mouth after hearing this story of Jonah? Because Jonah wasn't a good missionary. He was barely a good messenger. But Jonah forgot that when you are a missionary, you are invested in the message. You are not just God's postal worker. And there's one more thing that Jonah should have remembered, that when you are commissioned by God, and now 
we're going we're gonna to grab some New Testament text here. When you are commissioned by God, you are not just a missionary, but you are also an ambassador. That you, by necessity, when you are representing the kingdom of God, you are representing something foreign to a world that doesn't know anything about it. Listen to this. This comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. This comes out of the NIV for a very specific reason. Starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. In the ESV, that word is control, but in the NIV, that word is compels, and that I like better. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you see where Jonah went wrong? He was delivering a message badly. The key to delivering the good news of Jesus is found in this passage in 2 Corinthians. It is to remember that we are all equally delivered by Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross was not just to make us all new, which he did, but he leveled the playing field in doing that. He said it doesn't matter what you have done in your life or how much you have done it, but the sacrifice on the cross is equal payment for everybody's sins. Everybody needs hope. Everybody needs grace. Everybody needs compassion. And everybody has found it through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so not only has everybody found forgiveness for their sins, not only has everybody found access to heaven through Jesus, but everybody has found new life. And so everybody in the world can be considered as someone waiting to find that grace, love, and forgiveness through Jesus. And that love that was given to us through Jesus is what compels us to action in our day-to-day -day business. For Christ's love compels us to be not just a missionary, one on mission with Jesus, but also an ambassador. Now, again, I'm going to do that low bar speaker move, and I'm going to define what an ambassador is. Okay, but here's the definition of an ambassador, because I think it's important. The definition of an ambassador is a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative. It's a person in a foreign land working for the sovereign leader of the home country, serving as a resident representative or messenger. Now, just park on that for just a second. When Jesus 
through his word says, you are Christ's ambassadors. He is saying you are living in a foreign land as a representative of me. You are not in your home country anymore. You are living on behalf of me, giving my message, which is a message of reconciliation, and you have to do it as ambassadors. So what do ambassadors do? One, they represent something foreign. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And two, they deliver a message as if the author of the message is right there in person. Now that's important because what Jonah did was he wandered into the city and he just said, 40 more days, God's going to nuke you. And you could tell he was kind of rooting for that outcome. Was he delivering the message as if the God of the universe, who had every intention to spare that city, if they would just listen to that message, was he delivering it as if the God of the universe, who is compassionate and slow to anger, was standing right there beside him? Absolutely not. In fact, just the opposite. So he wasn't delivering the message as if the author was right there with him. When Christ's love compels us, when you have been so impacted by what Christ has done for you that he motivates your steps and he gives life to your words and he moves you to action, you do things in a way that represents him and represents him well. And when you live as an ambassador and you understand that you represent something foreign, now, that you, now when you do that, you understand that there is a whole world of people who aren't going to speak your language, who aren't going to understand your references, who aren't going to understand where you're coming from or where you want to go, and they are going to act accordingly. Let me give you an example. So I watch a lot of sports, like football, played a lot of soccer growing up. Um, my, my kids are in soccer now. And I have noticed that there are a lot of sports references that are biblical references, right? Have you ever seen uh, one team that's going to get crushed playing a team that's going to crush them and heard the announcer say, well, we've got a real David and Goliath matchup here. It's only a few more years before nobody understands what the David and Goliath reference is, or they only understand it within the sports paradigm. They only understand that David is the team that's going to get crushed against Goliath, the team that's going to crush them. They have no idea what the Bible story is that gets, gives life to that reference. Now, the temptation for those of us that grew up in church and understand that Bible story is to shake our heads and go, oh, I can't believe the world doesn't understand that story. But if you're thinking like an ambassador, you should be thinking, I don't expect them to understand what that, what that story is because that's a foreign land reference for them, right? Turn the other cheek is a biblical reference, but that's a foreign language reference for the world. They don't know what that means, right? Be a good Samaritan is a biblical reference, but that's a foreign land reference. And so if you're thinking like an ambassador, don't shake your head that the world doesn't know what those things mean. It's our job to lovingly and mercifully and kindly explain to them what those references mean and what all the hubbub is about this Jesus person that they keep hearing about. Not to shake our heads, not to tisk tisk, not to just 
grunt and I can't believe and all of those things and complain, but to understand that we represent something foreign. Remember, our job is to focus not on being a messenger, forget about being a messenger, but to focus on being a missionary ambassador. So the question that we have here is, what if we all lived like missionary ambassadors every day? Like our job was to introduce people to a foreign country, a foreign language, and a foreign way of thinking every day. How would we do that? Let me give you three things. I don't know how many of you have traveled abroad or maybe even lived abroad or lived in a foreign country, but if you ever go to a foreign country, there are three things that you want. If you've never been there and you don't speak the language, there are three things that you generally want. In fact, even, you know, my wife and I, uh, we went to, uh, on our honeymoon, when we went to Kauai, and of course, uh, we're remembering the people who are, who are really suffering from the, the fires on, on Maui. But we went to Kauai, and one of the best investments we made before going there, I've only been there one time, was we had a killer guidebook. I mean, this guidebook was fantastic. It told us where all the trails were to the, to the, you know, the waterfalls that nobody knew about. The only thing that it led us astray on, there was only one complaint that we had, and we should have known better coming from Houston, was it told us that we had to get you know, burritos out of this one, you know, it was just like a window, you know, on the side of a building. They're like, these are the best burritos on the island. And maybe they are, but coming from Houston, we should never have tried them. Because the best burritos on Kauai are the worst burritos in Houston by a country mile. Okay, so that we, we wasted one meal. But other than that, the guidebook was fantastic. It told us everywhere that we needed to go, it told us how many, how much things were gonna cost. It was great. Yes, this was before we had, you know, Google for everything, okay? So leave me alone. I am that old, all right? So, but if you're going to travel abroad, you need a really good guidebook or, or source for local information, okay? You need that. If you're going to a place that you don't speak the language, it helps to have a really good translator. So you need a guidebook. You need a translator. And here's the third thing that you need. You need to feel safe, Right? At, at least to some degree, or you won't go there, right? You need to feel safe. I'm going to say that you need those three things when you engage a Christian for the first time. You need a guidebook, you need a translator, you need to feel safe. If you're going to visit a church for the first time, now, here's where pastors get mad at me. So I'm not going to say, go visit a church and then stay there. I'm going to say, go visit a church and then come back to Garden Oaks Maybe never do it again, but do it one time. If you have not visited a church in five years, sometime with John's blessing, tell them you're going to do it and then come right back to Garden Oaks and never do it again. But if you've never visited a church, you should do it. It's a scary experience. If, and if you have kids, it's absolutely terrifying, right? Because you don't know what's going on. In fact, actually, I did it this morning. I, I hadn't been here in a while. I went to the front doors, except they're locked. Okay, right? So if you, if you don't actually make eye contact with the greeter here, if you just somehow skip that, or if he doesn't jump out into the 300 degree heat right in time, you're going to walk to the front doors that are locked, which I understand. You know, I get it. The side door is much more convenient, actually faces the parking lot. I get that. But if your first impression on the church is to walk to the double doors that are glass and you see through there and you're like, you know, and then you have to go around here, you're like, oh, dang it, I walked to the wrong door. It happens. I get it. It's not a judgment on you. 
But if you have not had the experience of visiting a church in the last five years, you should do it. And you should do it to a church that doesn't speak your heart language. Because here's what you'll experience. You'll go in, you won't know where to go, you won't know where to take your kids, you won't know when to stand up and sit down, right? Because we don't do church bulletins anymore, and actually I'm in favor of that. But I grew up in a Presbyterian church, a very large Presbyterian church, and they told you to the second when to stand up, when to sit down. It was in little italics. I can still remember it like I was there yesterday. You know, every hymn, stand up, sit down, there were asterisks on everything. Some of you are smiling because you, you grew up in that church, right? And it was like a little aerobic exercise. We were up and down all the time. And we sang every verse, not just the first, second, and fourth, okay? We sang every verse, even the ones that the worship minister sometimes made up. So, you know, if you, you know, and then if you, if you have to check in your kids, you don't know where to go to do that. You don't know if the weird smell is coming from the, the toys in the nursery or one of the kids in the nursery. You know, you don't know if that was a, you know, and then he put that on the toy, you don't know if that's the deacon's kids and they're always there and they're safe or that's the new kid and yeah, that churches are weird, y'all, you know? And where else are you going to go? Honest question. And some of you are wondering this about me right now. Where else are you going to go in a given week that you're going to sit in a room like this, listen to a total stranger, tell you how to live your life? Now, if that's a regular occurrence for you, you and I should talk because you go to a lot of self-help seminars and there are better ways to do that. But... This is really the only time in a given week that you're going to do that. You're going to go show up in a room that looks generally like this and listen to a total stranger, read from a book, especially if you're not a Christian, and you're like, I don't have a regular experience with this book, and now Yehu is up here on the stairs telling me how to live my life. This is a strange experience. Let's just call it what it is. And I haven't even gotten into some of the worship lyrics, and some of those songs I love. I grew up Presbyterian, and I can out-hymn most of you in this room. Not all of you, but most of you. And let's face it, some Christian songs, if you do not have a Christian background, they sound weird, right? Washed by the blood of the Lamb. We all know what that means. If you grew up in church, we all know what that means. But if you don't know what that means, that sounds like a tragic farming accident. And we are standing there going, yes, praise Jesus, yes. You know, and, and if you don't know what that means, you're going, these people are crazy. You represent something foreign. You're an ambassador. You have to be the guidebook, the translator, and the person who makes that person feel safe. When you're going to bring them in here, you're going to bring them to small group, you're going to introduce them to what this book says because it says a lot of really, really good things. You have to be the guidebook. You have to tell them how this works. You have to say, you know, when you come to faith in Jesus, this is what it looks like. Let me, let me show you how that works. And this is where we're going to end. You thought I'd never get there, but I am. When you forget about being a messenger, the world has enough messages. It doesn't have enough missionaries. When you forget about being a messenger and you focus on being a missionary ambassador, this is what it looks like. When I was six years old, my parents got divorced and it wrecked our house, as it does wreck every house. My mom was a wreck. My three-and-a-half-year-old brothers uh, were twins, and they didn't understand anything. They just knew that when mom cries, they cry. And I was the man in the house at six, almost seven. And I might be the only person that you ever meet that came to faith in Jesus because of the story of Samson. Samson, for those of you who don't know, is found in the book of Judges, and Samson was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the Bible. He was just 
and I don't mean this as a shot to Arnold, he was just like the muscle-bound Neanderthal of the Bible. But God made him strong to do certain things. And we were doing family devotionals one night, and it was in that era of our, of our life where everything was just messed up. And so we're doing the family devotional. My mom was reading this story, and I can remember the room that we were in. And, and this was, gosh, almost it was a little more than 40 years ago now. And I heard the story about how God made someone strong. And I didn't need anything more in my life at that time than for God to make me strong. And so I asked my mom, I said, Mom, is it true that God can make me strong? And she said, yes. If you trust in Jesus, God will make you strong. It doesn't make all your problems go away. But he will walk with you and be with you. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. And he will be your friend and he will make you strong. And I said, that's all I need. Sign me up. And so that night, after hearing the story of Samson, of all stories, I gave my life to Jesus and I trusted him that night. Now, and I will tell you, it didn't make all my problems go away. And I spent years trying to figure out what it is. I knew that I was saved at that point. I knew that he had forgiven me for my sins. I didn't know what it meant for him to be the Lord of my life. So I spent years and I'm, I spend every day trying to figure out what that means and how to live more like him and how to walk more like him. But I'm firmly convinced that that's the way it's supposed to be. When you are a disciple of Jesus, it means that you are a learner and a follower of him. And that every day you get up saying, Lord, your love for me compels me to live more like you every day. And when I say that that's my testimony, it just means that that's what I've seen and heard and experienced. And that was my testimony in two minutes. You have a testimony, or you could have a testimony, and you could tell it in two minutes. If you've never experienced Jesus, you can today. You can say a prayer. I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And you can say a prayer today to say, Lord, I have made mistakes, and I need forgiveness for those mistakes. I have sinned. I have fallen short of the best that you want for me in my life. I've tried to chase after the good, but I want the best. And so, Lord, today, I want to reset all the dials, and I want to follow you with my life. So, Lord, forgive me of my sins and help me to follow you every day of my life. That's the prayer that you can say. When I pray here in just a second, you can say that prayer. And if you do, and you choose to follow Jesus with your life, all I would say is, in response, tell somebody. Tell somebody that you came to church with, Come tell Carlos, tell somebody, because that will help you in your journey as a disciple. There's more to it, but that's the first step. Tell somebody. And if you've already made that decision to follow Jesus with your life, then I would just simply ask, what's next? As you focus on being a missionary and you forget about being a messenger, what's next for you? You know, at UBA, we live with the firm conviction that within every church, there are people being called out to great commission tasks. And it may be that God is saying to you today, just like he said to me more than 20 years ago, you're supposed to be in full-time gospel ministry. You might be being called to be a full-time missionary. You might be called to lead worship, be a pastor. Work with a diaspora people group here in Houston. 
there are all kinds of gospel tasks that God may be saying to you, and you might have been running from it. And, you know, teenager, young person, this might be something that God is planting a seed in you today to say, man, I've seen what Jonah did. That ain't it. But there's another way. And so listen to those words. God may be planting a seed in you. And it might be that in your workplace, God is saying, you can be a missionary right there. I put you in that workplace for a reason. I gave you skills. I gave you degrees. I gave you a position so that somehow some people might come to know Jesus through you right where he puts you. I have every belief that's how God works. 